Hey, this is Rob Orman. I am a physician coach and host of the Stimulus Podcast, what you're about to hear. This show focuses on stories, strategies, tactics, or sometimes just information that I think will help you thrive in your career and life. If you want to dive deeper, if you are feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, or have any kind of challenge in your career that you're finding it hard to navigate, one-on-one coaching might be just what you're looking for. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now as a full-time physician coach, my job is to help you get where you want to be. You can learn more at my website, roborman.com. All right, here we go. Before jumping into the matter at hand, the podcast episode, I put a new feature on last week's newsletter that surprisingly got the most most activity. It was kind of a last minute thing. So as a bit of background, the way I put the newsletters together in general, not, not always, but in general, is I write a short blurb on something that I took home from the most recent pod. And yes, of course, that's to let people know what's on the show, but also to encapsulate a single learning point, what really resonated with me a week or two after the posting. But as I said, kind of randomly last week, I put down a few things that I've liked of late. I titled it Three Wickedly Cool Things You Might Enjoy. In this case, it was a book, a video, and an article. Is Three Wickedly Cool Things You Might Enjoy a ripoff of Five Bullet Fridays of Five Cool Things You Might Dig or the myriad permutations of that out there? Probably, probably is. I'm a total creative thief. But these are my three wickedly cool things. If you're already a newsletter subscriber, you know what I'm talking about. If not, check it out. So there you go. Call to action. Check out the newsletter. I'm not even saying subscribe to the newsletter. You can do it if you want at the bottom of it. There's a little link you can click or you can do it on the website, robwarman.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, how you can just take a look at the most recent newsletter. So you know what you're getting yourself into. If it looks like something you want to get in your inbox once a month or so, it's about how often I put them out, sign up. If it doesn't, do not sign up because it should bring you joy, not inbox bloat. We are all about the anti-bloat here. All right, on today's show, a deep dive on disability insurance, such an important topic, and it can seem like a black box, like an enigma wrapped in a mystery, potential subterfuge and hoodwinkery, am I covered by something useful, or am I paying a premium each month for a junker? I personally found going through the process of obtaining disability insurance complex and at times inscrutable. And also being on the sidelines, watching many docs try to navigate the disability insurance gauntlet when they're not able to work has just reinforced my impression that we or you really need to self-advocate and be well-informed when setting up disability coverage. And so our guest today is Dr. Stephanie Pearson. She is founder and CEO of Pearson Rabbits. That is an insurance advisory firm that specializes in disability and life insurance for healthcare professionals. Dr. Pearson's backstory, trained OBGYN, then sustained a career-ending injury during a delivery. Specifically, she was kicked in the shoulder during a difficult delivery by the mom, not the baby, and could no longer operate. She had a surgical repair, didn't go well, and because she couldn't operate, she was terminated from her job. Luckily, she had a group disability insurance policy through her hospital, but unluckily, the fine print, it didn't cover work-related injuries. I mean, that just, that just boggles the mind, but alas, that was the case. 
She also had two private policies. I mean, she was really set up when it came to disability coverage, but none of them, none of her policies gave the coverage that she thought that she was going to get. And long story short, she then became well-versed in the insurance world. She became a champion of cutting through the BS when it came to healthcare professionals getting the insurance they need and think they're paying for, right? That is really such a key part of this. In this episode, I try to frame the question so that we can just go top to bottom for buying a policy, what you're actually getting, what you should look for, what happens if you do become disabled, the fine print that can fool you, own OT coverage, same profession coverage, and much more. So let's get to it. We start off with a conversation with Dr. Pearson addressing a phenomenon that is well known when a healthcare professional tries to collect disability, and that is it becomes a fight. You know what I mean? The Marcus of Queensberry rules apply even when it is so clear that they're not able to work. I mean, what is the deal? Here we go. Thankfully, I can tell you dozens and dozens of stories where people just got paid. So I don't want everyone listening to think that it's a fight every time. However, one thing is what's the contract language? So we have seen historically that group benefits, so the benefits you get through your employer, association benefits, sometimes they're governed by a different set of rules and laws than private policies are. It is a lot harder to get a group benefit paid than it is to get a private individual policy paid. When we're talking about private policies, it comes down to, is it a black and white case? Is it a gray case? And I can at least say from my experience, black and white cases do get paid. Yes, there are a lot of hoops that people have to jump through. Sometimes the paperwork is not easy. You have to fill out forms. Your treating physician has to fill out forms. You know, getting medical records, you would think with EMR that getting medical records would be easier. That's not the case. It's actually one of the banes of my existence is getting physician statements. But a lot of it has to do with if it's gray, they're going to contest it. And to be quite honest, we kind of have to blame those that came before us in the 1980s when medicine changed and insurances on the health insurance side started getting involved with medicine. There was a huge uptick in claims. Docs were having new bike accidents, golf accidents, car accidents, and they actually changed the industry moving forward. And there's been a decent amount of fraud in every sector. And so they're really trying to make sure that the people who are putting in claims are being fully honest. And it's really frustrating. And I talk to a lot of disabled physicians. I actually have a secret Facebook group called Physicians for Physicians, which is just for physicians who, because of injury or illness, have had to change their scope of practice or leave medicine. And I started it because I felt like I didn't have support when everything was happening. And it's very organic. It's just word of mouth. And we have hundreds and hundreds of members now. And being able, 
as an aside, being able to help physicians on that side is just as rewarding to me as the educational stuff that I do on the front end. You had mentioned something about the group policy or the one that you get through work. And I think a lot of folks, docs, that's who, who, we're, who we're talking about right now, think, oh, I, I get all these benefits. I get health insurance, life insurance, disability insurance through work. I'm not fully clear on like what it is that is unique about those work policies that makes them more fraught than a private policy. So there are three big things that we run into on a regular basis, and it really has to do with taxation, ownership, and language. So if you have an employer-paid policy, any money that you would get from that benefit is actually considered taxable income. Ownership has to do with the ability to take it with you moving forward. So they tend to be employment dependent. So if okay. you leave your job, you leave that benefit behind. The biggest issue though has to do with language. And so number one, oftentimes it's one line on your open enrollment packet, right? You check a box yes. and you think you're yeah. covered. What they don't tell you is that there may be a maximum benefit. So they may say that here it is, but we're not going to give you more than $6,500 a month or $10,000 a month. I have actually seen it as low as $1,000 a month and as high as $35,000 a month. And they don't have to tell you that. Also, most of them will only cover your base, not your income. For me, not that I got, I didn't get it anyway, but my bonus was about a third of my income. And I didn't realize until I got hurt and actually read the document, that wouldn't have been covered anyway. And especially in big academic, like tertiary university settings, I've seen people's income get broken down into six different buckets. And usually the base is not very high. Additionally, there's no standardization of language in insurance. So they may say that it's own occupation or specialty specific, but when you read the document, it may only be specialty specific for a couple of years, and then it switches to any occupation. Or the way that they define own occupation is what's called held to the national economy or the local labor market. It is not specific to what one employee does at one employer site. What that allows them to do is cast a really wide net that says, this is what you would, could, should be able to do based on your training, education, and skill set. They often will define total disability as you're unable to do your job as they define it, and you're not gainfully employed. Well, most of us are pretty type A folks who want to work. And you don't want to have to worry about doing something else and losing part or all of your benefit. And I I joke, I used to say the old adage that I'd give my left arm to be home with my boys more. Turns out I gave my left arm to be home with my boys more. And after six weeks, I was kind of ready to kill everybody, you know? So you don't want to have to worry about losing your benefit while you're trying to figure out how to be a, a substantial member of society. And they've gotten really good at sneaking in things that they're not going to cover or that they're going to limit. So oftentimes we'll see that there's a two-year maximum payout for mental health issues. 
they've now created a subset of illnesses called subjective illnesses. And they have a really interesting legal ease definition where it'll say including but not limited to the following. And things we've seen are headaches, fatigue, ringing in the ears, pain, right? So things that maybe don't have a truly pathognomonic test, there's a lot of leeway for them to say they're not going to cover. And recently, we've started to see limitations on musculoskeletal problems, which, by the way, is the number one reason that physicians leave medicine. And since the start of COVID, we are seeing more and more policies where they're saying they're not covering work-related injuries or illnesses. I don't know. How are we supposed to prove where we get illnesses from? I mean, there's just such a wide space for them to challenge your claim. Hey, I'm going to jump in here for a second before I ask the next question about own occupation insurance. Because I forgot to mention in the introduction that I have a complete transcript of this conversation on the website. I was doing the show notes for it and they were becoming massive, like pages long. And there's just so much information in here that I thought, you know, let's uh, let's give a transcript a try. We've had a lot of listeners ask for it. So here we go. This is the experiment. You can download the PDF. You can look at the PDF. You can have it for posterity, whatever. It's at the website. Let me know what you think about it. Maybe this will be the future of show noting, just some bullets on the website and the app, and then you can get the whole dang transcript. All right, back to the combo. You're talking about own occupation. Correct. So, that, so there's, there's kind of a, back when I was looking at supplemental disability insurance, the insurance agent said, man, this is own oc. This is the golden fleece, holy grail. You're not going to be able to get this ever after this year because they're just going to close the door on ODOC, which I'm thinking is that if you can't do, say for me, emergency medicine, but you decide that you want to be a a computer programmer, you're going to get paid because you can't do emergency medicine and you could also have this job as a computer programmer, no problem. Am I I getting it right for the ODOC? Yes. And that's how the private policies typically work. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. As I mentioned, there's no standardization of language. Each company has its own phrase. So even within kind of the own OC umbrella, it may be regular OC, it may be true own OC, pure own OC, but you want to make sure with a private policy that it is truly specialty specific. And that was one of the mistakes I made. I had two private policies. I was told they were both specialty specific. However, one of them had a addendum called a transitional occupation language. And to be quite honest, it was kind of a lie of omission. It is a truly specialty specific policy, which reads you're considered totally disabled if you can't do your job regardless if you're gainfully employed in another occupation but it adds until you make your pre-disability earnings. Now, you might say, well, why wouldn't everyone want that, right? Disability insurance, it's supposed to be income replacement insurance. If you can make what you made, do you really need it? Well, think about it. When you were in training, were you at the height of your earning potential? 
absolutely not. I got hurt about nine years into my attending hood. I had just been asked to be the chairperson of our department. I was not at my earning ceiling. I still had room to go, but my policy will stop paying me when I make what I made the year I got hurt. So it doesn't take into account future earning potential. And that wasn't how it was sold to me. So let's say there's just something that's nice and clean. And it says, yeah, if you can't, if you can't do your own occupation, we're going to pay you. Yes. Does that still exist? Yes. Okay. And does it still exist without, you know, I have a, or I had a neighbor who was a, a real estate attorney and <laughs> we, we, he took a look at some contracts for us and he looked at, he, he looked at one contract and he said, oh yeah, this has, this has a lot of hair on it. I don't like that. I don't know. <laughs> I'd never heard that phrase before. <laughs> and then, and then we brought him another contract and said, oh, I like this. There's no hair on this contract. <laughs> So they talk about hair to shave, right? I never really took it that far to think about it, but I guess hair to shave. <laughs> it was a, it was not, not a flattering type of hair, not a, not well yeah. coiffed. So is it possible to get an own ox supplemental insurance without hair on it? Yes. Okay. And the pool is small. There are currently six companies that truly cater to the physician marketplace that offer truly specialty-specific language with additional bells and whistles that make a quality policy. And I have seen all of them pay claims easily. And I've been told by various disability lawyers that there's kind of a like peak and trough on how companies are to work with. And that really gets based on what's their claims history. So if one company has a lot of claims this year, they may be harder to get to pay out next year versus a company that really hasn't had a whole lot of claims one year, they may be easier to work with the following year. I get asked often, like, who's the best? Who's the easiest? The answer is it's going to change over time. And we look at what's the contract language and the playground is small. We're not looking at dozens and dozens of companies like when you talk about life insurance. I have one friend on disability it was in a major accident, wants so much to be back in clinical work, but can't. There, there's no possible way. Is collecting some disability and wants to do some supplemental work on the side. And it's just, you know, that that they can do from home, etc. Et and when it came time to actually do it, sign the contract, you know what, actually, I, I can't do this because then I'm not going to be able to collect disability or it's gonna, I'm going to be penalized for that. And so if you are collecting disability and end up doing some kind of work, and we were talking about that ONOC and all the nuance, but in general, does it stop? Is it prorated? Because it, it does seem like people are disincentivized from to work, to keep working in again, order to that's the, disability. Again, that's the difference between group policies and private policies and what are the riders that you're getting on your private policies. So remember when I said a lot of group benefits, the definition of total disability is you can't do your job and you're not working versus private policies where what you want it to say is 
you can't do your job regardless if you're working. So it all goes back to what's the contract language, the group benefits. I have, I should never say never, but I have never seen a group policy that has the gold standard language. And yes, you are absolutely penalized if you try to do any gainful work, right? With the private policies, like for my policies, I started an insurance company, we're making money. I'm personally not making what I made as a physician yet, but I'm going to get paid one of my policies until I'm 65. My shoulders aren't coming back. One of my policies, if and when I make enough, I'm absolutely going to lose that policy. The policies you get through work have not been met with great fanfare in no. this conversation. So let's let's talk about the supplemental policy. So if you're going to go get private disability insurance, you're going to go through an agent and you're putting a lot of trust in that agent and they are incentivized to sell you a policy. And so it's, I, I would imagine that there's some safeguards here, but it's, it, there's, there's a risk that you're taking. And so how do you protect yourself to make sure that you are getting the real deal? So I want to take one step back because I realized that, yes, we've painted a pretty negative picture about group benefits, but I do want to say that like everything in medicine, there's an exception to the rule. If you are somebody who is hard to insure, who has a complicated medical file, who has illnesses already that would preclude you from getting a good private policy, sometimes group benefits are the best thing since sliced bread. So I just want to make sure that mm. that the viewers understand that, that there are times where I will say to somebody, any job that you take, one of your negotiating factors should be group disability insurance. So there is a time and a place. If you are young, happy, healthy, intact, and I, I use the term healthy-ish, right? If there's nothing in your record that that's going to be a big red flag, then yes, private policies are heads and shoulders better than group benefits. To answer the question, I think that you're absolutely right, right? We're, we're putting trust into somebody who is trying to sell you something, right? So once you can get kind of past that point, I think it comes down to, do you feel like you're being properly educated? Have they presented you with more than one option? Have they explained what the pros and cons are of these different policies? And I can say one of the things that our company does differently that I was really passionate about, and I've kind of put my like line, drew a line in the sand. Everybody in our company is salaried. They have no idea what our commission rates are. I actually hand on Bible, don't know what our commission rates are. I let our CFO deal with that. So we can say honestly to people, we're not incentivized to sell a particular group, right? Do we want to make a sale? Well, I'd like to keep our doors open and our lights working. So yes, we are in a sales industry, but I want our brokers to truly be working for clients and not for carriers, which is 
also that there's a semantical difference between an agent and a broker. Traditionally speaking, an agent is somebody who works for a specific company and is incentivized to sell that company over other companies. And you can ask somebody, are you an agent or are you a broker? Brokers historically are like Switzerland. So we have appointments with all of the companies and we're not really incentivized to sell one over the other. I'm going to create a hypothetical cousin David for you. Okay. Do you, do you have a cousin David? I actually do. Yeah, as do I. Great guy. Yeah. <laughs> as is mine. And if you're listening, there you go. Easter egg just for you. Both Davids. Woo-hoo. Both Davids. Okay. So cousin David is a cardiothoracic surgeon just starting his career and goes to an insurance broker and they say, oh, here's all your policies. Here's all, here's all your options. You might want to go with this one. This seems great. And cousin David says, you know, my cousin, Stephanie, she's going to give me a second opinion. So David says, what do I do? I don't know what to choose. I want to do something. Now you, with your experienced eye, are going to take these things and be like, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you're looking for something in particular. Looking like, here's the blinking red light that I'm looking for every time. What's that line or what are those lines? So number one is, is it truly specialty specific? Is the ability to get more later without underwriting built in? So also goes by various different names. I refer to it as the pool. So that's second. Is there a residual or partial benefit shown? There are actually more of those types of claims filed and paid every year rather than total. So the way that I explain them is imagine that you can still do your job. So Cousin David develops MS, God forbid, sorry, Cousin David, in five years. He might still be able to do everything that he can do, but because of the fatigue associated with MS, he can only work four days a week or three days a week. That would trigger a partial or residual benefit. Now, they each have different triggering events as far as how much you have to lose and how they're going to pay you back, but that one's really important. And then there are sub things that I talk about that that may be more negotiable. So things like a cost of living adjustment, which is inflationary protection, a catastrophic benefit, which is exactly what it sounds like. If something really horrible happens, it's an added benefit. And I want to make sure that any available discounts are being shown on the application. 99% of the discounts that exist in the marketplace are what's called shared discounts. So anyone can use it. If you're selling the policy, you can show the discount. There's a very, very small subset that have been bequeathed or people that have been grandfathered in. I do think over the next couple of years, those are going to get taken away. That's what a little rabbit has told me. But those are really the big things that I'm looking for and making sure that that a policy is intact. Is this a discount? Like if you don't smoke or skydive that like you get that discount? Oh, actually, no. on, on my disability one, it said, <laughs> I, you, if you sign this, you cannot skydive or scuba dive. That was <laughs> not true. No, that's what it said on my policy. <laughs> oh, for yours? Yes. Well, so there is an, so before I answer the first question, there is an avocation questionnaire 
And so if you say that you do certain risky avocations, typically for disability insurance, they're going to put that in as an exclusion or something that they're not going to cover. So if you say that you skydive every weekend, there will be a line on the policy that says, Rob, we're willing to cover you, but not if you become disabled from a skydiving accident. And so it usually doesn't change cost. That's things that they're going to say we're just not covering to the point of, oh my God, what was your question? It was, it was the, the discounts. The, oh, the, the discounts. The, yeah. There are different types of discounts in training. So residency and fellowship, there are discounts just associated with being a trainee. There are different association discounts that are available through different carriers. One of the carriers, if you're under 40, you qualify. Some of the companies have preferred occupations and that changes almost yearly. So again, goes with kind of what's their claims history. And so if a certain group of physicians haven't made claims in a while, they may give you an extra discount because of that. And there's also something called institutional discounts or multi-life discounts. And basically that means that one institution or employer site has so many people that have signed up with one of the companies that there's a discount just because of the volume. And so we can see discounts anywhere from 5% up to 40% because most of the companies you can stack. Um, And the one I, I forgot to mention If you are comfortable with a lower mental health and substance abuse benefit, some of the companies will actually give you a discounted rate for taking that off of their risk plate. Let me ask you about that that mental health aspect. (laughs) So one of my former partners is still on long-term disability for anxiety. And what happened was all of a sudden... They were gone from work for three months, and then they were able to collect their disability. And it 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 it, it, it was not that they went on short term and then long term. It was that they had to be gone for this time and then be getting the therapy. And it was, was like, well, there's some there's some sort of process that you have to go through for for this. What what was that all about? So there is something on long-term policies called either the elimination period or the waiting period. So that's the time between you leaving work and you getting paid. Different carriers have different thresholds. It can be as low as 30 days. It can be 60 days, 90 days, 180 days, 365 days, Some companies will even go longer than that. I would say that the most commonly used elimination period is the 90-day, thinking that most people will have one or more of the following in place, a short-term benefit through their employer, an accrual of PTO, and or an emergency fund in the bank. So anytime you shorten that period, the policy gets more expensive. And so you're trying to get the best coverage, but keeping cost, you know, at bay or, or taking that into account. And so I don't typically recommend shortening any lower than 90. 
I even have some folks that do opt for a six month because they have accrued a better nest egg, a better emergency fund that would be okay for them not to get paid for six months because that would build in an additional savings. You mentioned short-term. Now, is short-term part of the long-term policy? Is that something else? So short-term is a different product. I will say that on the private side, short-term policies are really expensive. And typically I will tell people, I recommend that you have money working in the bank for you. But most employment places will offer short-term disability. And basically it's to cover you, as it says, for just a short term. And so typically it's built into your benefits package. It may be voluntary as long as it's not super expensive. I'll tell people to take advantage of it. That may kick in at day zero, day seven, day 14, day 21. So you have a shorter wait to get paid, but you also have a shorter duration of payment. Typically, it it's only going to cover you for three months or six months. I have seen policies up to a year, but the majority are either a three or six month benefit. So if someone is thinking that they're going to need long-term disability, this is potentially in the future. They have an illness or, or something is going on. It's like, I'm probably not going to be able to continue working, but they're pushing it say like, all right, I'm going to keep working until I can get this dialed in. What are the steps they need to take to start the process in a way that makes a fight with the insurance company less likely? So I'm going to assume that this is somebody that has both a group benefit and a private benefit so that I can address them both in the conversation. So the biggest thing I always tell people is start getting all your medical records together because of the way that healthcare has changed and a lot of practices go through third parties for medical records, getting medical records themselves can take up to three months and you don't want to have to be waiting for that. So get all your medical records, put them in one safe place, create a folder on your computer so that everything's there that you need contact the carrier. So for a group benefit, you have to go through HR. So you're going to contact HR and actually ask for a claims packet. Now, depending on your HR department, they may be able to help you. They should be able to at least direct you to who you need to contact, who's the carrier. And I will tell you that is also the bane one of my banes of existence. Let me pause you on that because common refrain has been, I'm not going to contact HR until I am ready to file for this because they're going to say, oh, you're filing for it? You're off shift. You can't work anymore. You're not saying that you're filing. All you're doing is asking for a packet or you can ask for the policy and within the policy, you should have a contact number. So it's not like you're going and saying, oh, my doctor said I have intractable migraines and I shouldn't be seeing patients. All you're saying to HR is, I want to have this in case I should ever need this. That's basically the steps internally for your job. And I will say, 
You don't need to give more information than you need to give because you don't want to back yourself into a corner where your job is at stake. With the private carriers, same idea. You want to have all your medical records in one place and you want to contact your agent or broker so that they can help you get the claims packet, take as much off of yourself as you can. Some of the companies now will not actually hand over stuff to agents and brokers. It has to be through the owner of the policy, which is the client, but it's always a good place to start. So there's paperwork for you to fill out, for your employer to fill out, and for your treating physicians to fill out. And I do tell people, you want to be 100% above board honest. I have a saying that I say a lot, I'm okay being famous. I'm not okay being infamous. So you don't want to be caught in misrepresentation. You don't want to be caught up in fraud. But you want to think about your bad days. There's kind of a tyranny of perfection that exists in medicine. Mm, We're supposed to be stronger than, tougher than, more resilient than normal. And we do have this sense of I can just push through it. I'm okay. I'm fine. We all do it. We've all been there. I think it's part of how we get through training without bad things happening. When you're filling out those papers, though, that's not the time to be a hero. You need to think about what are you feeling? What can't you do on your bad days? Because you're going to have some good days, but that's not what you want to put on paper. Could I deliver a totally uncomplicated, normal, vaginal, spontaneous birth? Probably, but so could my 15-year-old son. It's what if there's a shoulder dystocia? What if there's a complication? What if the heart rate goes down? I can't get my shoulders to get in the positioning that I need to safely be able to deliver a baby. You don't want me delivering your wife, your sister, or your best friend. And so I think that we have to overcome that space of invulnerability and actually put down on paper what's really happening. And it might surprise you that it's really hard for a lot of physicians to do that. And I find myself having to go over that time and time again when I'm speaking with somebody who thinks that they're ready to go out on claim. And then ultimately, it's be your best at, be your own advocate and follow up on stuff physicians are really busy. Getting these physician statements are really hard. And it's probably not even your physician's fault. You're sending it to the office. It gets put in a certain bin. Maybe their mid-level is looking at it. Maybe their mid-level is filling it out. You want to be able to look at what's on these papers that are getting signed off by your physician and make sure that they're accurate. Because I have also seen those forms where I can tell as a physician, that it was not the treating physician who filled it out. Do you recommend to your clients that when they are starting this process, that they have an attorney that specializes in this to help them navigate it? Or is that going to be a case-by-case thing? Yeah, that depends. Black and white cases, I have not made that recommendation. If I am concerned that there's a grayness and that it's going to get challenged, then I absolutely will make that recommendation. You had mentioned before about getting the forms and getting the information so you can start the process. Does that 
put the insurance company on some sort of alert for you? Or is it just, nope, we just send these out. And then until you file or you, until you actually make the claim, nothing happens. It's the latter. Nothing okay. happens. You ask for the claims. There's somebody who's just sending them out. It's not like this big red flag goes up. When you file a claim, the big red flag doesn't even go up right away because there are some times where we'll say to people, look, we don't know if you're going to get back or not in that 90 days or that 180 days. We just want to get the ball rolling so that we're not looking on day 90 at filing. And so it's not like car insurance where you know you make a claim and whether they pay it or not, your cost goes up. Nothing changes. These policies should be what's called automatically renewable and non-cancelable. So you've gone through medical and financial underwriting. They've made you an offer. You're paying your premiums. The policy's set. They can't change it. And so it's not like you're penalized, even if you go on claim and get back. Actuarially speaking, the average long-term claim is five years or less. So we've had clients, I've had friends and, and whatnot, who have gone out for a period of time, gone back to work, and the policy just picks up where you left off. You're not paying them when they're paying you. But once you can go back and they stop paying you, you just pick up. It's not like you owe them back pay. It's not like the policy suddenly more expensive. It's not like they're not going to give you more if you start making more. And then right? you can go back on it if you can't yep. work again. Okay. Yep. Are there certain specialties that are more prone to having higher numbers of disability claims? So yeah. at the end of the day, yeah. I ask the companies every year and they come back that it's proprietary information. Okay. What I can say is physicians get put into what's called occupational classes. And those classes dictate cost. The lower the number, the higher the cost of the policy. So for one company, three, it goes 3M to 6M. 3M is your emergency medicine, anesthesia, pain medicine, your 6M is pediatricians, family practice. So one has to intuit that the reason that certain occupational groups are more expensive to cover is because they go out on claim more. It's much more physical to be an emergency doc or an OBGYN than it is to be right. a dermatologist. Right. Now- some of the companies, interesting that you pick dermatology, some of the companies for dermatology, cardiology, and radiology, okay. they will break out diagnostic or non-invasive and invasive. And they use the word invasive, which is kind of bothersome to me because when I think of an interventional radiologist, I'm thinking of the radiologists who's doing stuff under fluoro, right? And, and like the big things. They use the term invasive, which allows them to categorize like your breast radiologists who may do stereotactic biopsies, who may do breaking of the skin is basically how they do it. 
So your dermatologist who is spending 95% of their time dealing with adolescence and acne is going to be less expensive to insure mm. than your Mohs dermatologist. How much income can a resident insure for versus an attending insurer? That is a great question. Oh, thanks. At long last. You're welcome. welcome. Well, it's interesting because for residents and fellows, it's not based on income, which seems kind of counterintuitive. So when you're in training, all of the companies offer something called a trainee package. And prior to about 12 months ago, everyone covered trainees for a $5,000 a month tax-free benefit. They didn't look at your income. They didn't look at your group benefits. One company just raised it to $5,500. Another company recently raised it to $6,000. But they don't look. They ask, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. When you become an attending, the game changes. Now, how much you qualify for is predicated on internal algorithms that look at how much money do you make, what benefits do you receive, and who pays for them, because that affects taxation, and then they dictate what you can get. So it's not like you can say to me, hey, Steph, I want $20,000 a month in disability insurance. I'm willing to pay for it. If your numbers don't match, I can't make it happen. The companies actually tell us, here's the max threshold that we're going to offer your client. And for some companies, you can take as much or as little as you want. For some of the companies, there are specific mandates to make sure that you can get more later. And so... It gets a little bit more complicated outside of training. And it's actually one of the reasons why you'll hear get it while you're in training, because especially for primary care folks, sometimes you're not even going to qualify for that $5,000 as a new attending because now they're looking at math. And depending on how high your group benefit goes, it's really going to affect what you can get. And as I mentioned about discounts, There are discounts that are available in training that get locked in that if you wait until you're in attending, we can't access them. So third year emergency medicine resident says, oh, that sounds great. I'd love $5,500 a month or $5,000 a month of disability coverage. I mean, I wouldn't want to be disabled, but what would they pay as far as their premium? It's so hard to answer that question, really, because the things that go into the cost are, are you a boy or a girl? It's more expensive for girls. How old are you? The younger you are, the cheaper it is. What kind of doc are you? An EM doc is going to pay a lot more than a pediatrician. The textbook answer to that question, although I think it's a little bit high, is that men should expect to pay 1% to 3% of their gross income and women should expect to pay two to 6%. I think that's high actually for residents and fellows. That's per, you per know, year, not per year and state matters. So things are more expensive in California than they are in Pennsylvania. 
the one thing I do like to point out regularly is that just because residents and fellows qualify for that amount, it doesn't mean that they need to purchase that amount. And that was also something that was not shared with me back in the day when I was purchasing this stuff. You can go as low as $1,000 a month so that you're not eating cat food to have disability insurance. I don't want somebody to be put out to do this. I want them to get their foot in the door. You know, range-wise for a $5,000 policy, taking all of the things that I just said into account, I've seen policies anywhere from $1,200 a year up to $5,000 a year for a $5,000 benefit, depending on all of those factors that I stated. So your PGY three or four or five now becomes, they had that $5,000 benefit there. It said, I- I'm doing the, I'm doing the Rolls Royce here. I don't know. This actually, is that, is that even a desired car anymore? I don't even know. Now you've got the, the Lamborghini. So. <laughs> Probably. You got the Tesla model X. There you go. S. And now I'm an attending and my income has just gone up fivefold. So I want to increase my disability insurance. Do you then kind of, is this like, okay, you can do it. You're a resident. It's, uh, we're just going to increase premium. You don't have to, to worry about it. Or is it, no, you got to go through the physical again. We're going to do your reassessment and all that business. Yeah. The goal of getting your policy when you are young and healthy yeah. is so that you never have to go through medical underwriting again. You will have to go through financial underwriting. Ah, okay. Okay. okay? Because they have to be, you have to be able to prove your income. I can't just go to the company and say, Rob's making a half a million dollars. What can I get him? They're going to say, let me see your employment contract or let me see your W-2. Let me see your 1099. Let me see a couple of pay stubs, right? Different carriers ask for different proof of income. They're going to ask, what are your group benefits? Who's paying for them? And then they're going to tell us what you qualify for. There is a gray zone right when you finish training, and it varies by carrier as to the length of time that the gray zone lasts. But they also have something called new in practice or starting practice limits. So just like for residents where they don't look at income or benefits, there is a level that we can get. And for most companies, it's $7,500. So sometimes new attendings, even though you now have a salary that's five, six fold, you haven't made it. And so there are times where taking cost into account where I'll recommend to somebody, look, you just graduated, you're within your first six months, year, what have you, depending on what company they have. I'll say, look, let's get this starting in practice limits. So we'll get you up to 7,500, make some money. And then in a year, in a couple of years, we'll play catch up. Now, are you taking a little bit of a risk there? Yes, because something could happen. I'm always going to want somebody to max out if it's not cost prohibitive. But I know at a certain point, stuff is cost prohibitive. I lived paycheck to paycheck early in my career, right? I was paying off my student loans. I had a mortgage. I had a baby. 
So there is some individuality that has to come into play. This is not a one size fits all commodity. And I think that people really have to be comfortable knowing that the person that they're working with understands kind of different things that are happening in your life and how to make the most sense out of it. And the payout for the supplemental insurance is that is not taxed, right? Correct. It's just because you've, you've put your post-tax money in there. So what you get post-tax, but the stu- as you were mentioning before, what you get from your employer does get taxed because you've paid for it with pre-tax. Right. If insurance. your employer benefit is employer paid, then it's taxable. Anything that you're paying for is going to be tax-free. Mm. Now, <laughs> there's a caveat to that one too. Sometimes employer policies will look like they are employer paid, but it's actually treated as imputed income. So it's built into your salary, but you don't actually realize it because it's going to pay for your insurance. In that case, it would come to you tax-free. So one thing that happens kind of this unexpected thing for docs when they do go on disability is all of a sudden they don't have their group health insurance or their hospital health insurance. Did not see that coming. How do you guide people in navigating that circumstance? So that is something that we discuss in the beginning. Currently, there is only one company that offers a COBRA benefit. Now, if you are somebody who is single and or has a partner that does not have benefits that you can jump on, well, that policy may be the best policy, even if it's a little bit more expensive. If you are a 1099 and you already buy your own insurance, well, it doesn't matter. If you have a partner that you can jump on their benefits, then it doesn't matter and you may be better paying less for a policy that doesn't have that benefit. I can't believe I didn't ask this in the beginning, man. What what poor reporting on my part. Why should somebody do this? Why should somebody have disability insurance? Because you don't want to have to sell your house pull your children out of school or go on food stamps. And and I don't mean that to sound hyperbolic, but we're all taught from early on, you need to have health insurance. You need to have car insurance. You need to have homeowners or renters insurance. A lot of women insure their engagement rings. Our biggest asset is our ability to make money. And we need to protect that ability. And I can tell you, I know physicians who were not properly prepared, who have had to sell their houses, who have had to go on Medicare, whose lives literally fell apart because they didn't have enough savings. They didn't know where their next money was coming from. And I think everyone needs this. All right. So someone's listening to this and they think, okay, I want to get on the ball and at least explore this. 
they meet a broker. Maybe they meet you. Maybe they can actually, can you do it state to state? Like somebody in Alaska can talk to you or in Pennsylvania. Yes. Okay. What are the key questions that they need to ask that broker? One would be really, are you an agent or a broker? Are okay. you going to show me multiple options? Are they truly specialty specific policies? I want to make sure that I'm covered if I can't do my job, regardless if I'm working in another occupation, because it has to be specialty specific, both by the definition of your occupation and by the definition of total disability. And you want to make sure that you are reading documents before you sign your name to them. You want to make sure that they're not sending in an application that you're not aware is happening. And I know that might sound weird, but especially with today's day and age with everything being virtual and via email, I not infrequently will have somebody reach out to me who says, so-and-so sent in an application and I had no idea that that was happening. I'm like, how does that happen? So you want to make sure that no, that you are okaying things moving forward. And I think that that's really some of the biggest stuff. And you want to make sure that whoever you're speaking to is really going through rider by rider and explaining what these mean, not just, here, this is the best thing for you, sign. Well, Stephanie, been great chatting with you. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one -on -one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.